It's mid-morning in early June 2007 on the Indonesian island of Lombok. I'm spending time at PT Semesta, a small labor recruitment industry agency that sends women to work as domestic servants in, in uh, Malaysia and Singapore. I've been conducting ethnographic fieldwork on the labor recruitment industry for several months, and Semesta has become one of my main research sites. Strategically located in an alley off the main road leading out of the city of Mataram and towards the central and eastern parts of the island, which are critical sources of, of migrant labor, Semesta is like most other recruitment agencies on Lombok, a gathering site for potential migrants and the informal labor recruiters who bring them there. On this particular day, Yati, a woman in her mid-twenties, comes into the reception area where I'm sitting with Rina and Hanna, uh, Semesta's office staff. I'd interviewed Yati the day before, and in two days' time, she's scheduled to leave from Malaysia on a two-year contract as a domestic servant. Semesta's already paid for her airline ticket, and all her paperwork is done. She's been to the Malaysian capital of Kuala Lumpur on contracts before. You can tell from her style. She's not as reserved as the other migrants living in the office and is quite fashionably dressed. As Yati walks in, she proclaims that she's returning to her village in East Lombok and will be back at the office the following morning. In keeping with Semesta's regulations, Yati has been living on the second floor of the office since her airplane ticket was finalized the previous week. Hannah is taken aback and exclaims, You can't go home. You have to stay here. But Yati insists. She says that she wants to see her two children one last time before leaving. Rina turns to me and whispers that they're worried that she'll get pregnant. A month earlier, Semester had sent a woman to Singapore, but upon arrival, her medical examination revealed that she was pregnant, and she was immediately sent back. We lost a lot of money, Rina explained. In fact, during the previous month, Semester had been having extensive problems with their recruits. Some had dropped out just before they were about to leave, others had become pregnant, while still others had disappeared from their employers only days upon arrival, particularly in Malaysia. This last group uh, consisted of women who had previously worked abroad, and Rina suggested that they were trying to escape from the debt that would be deducted from their salaries over a period of six months. In fact, some sources claim that 30,000 Indonesian maids in Malaysia run away each year. For Semesta, the, the problem had become so serious that the owner, Pakiskander, a Chinese-Indonesian man from, from the Rio archipelago, just off the coast of Singapore, would be arriving the following week to handle the daily operations of the, of the company indefinitely. In light of this, it made sense for Hanna to turn to Yati and ask her directly if and what kind of contraceptive she was taking. Yati replied without hesitation that she was on the shot and had taken her last one on May 15th. Hanna repeated, May 15th? And nodded, reluctantly, reluctantly agreeing that Yati could leave. After she walked out the door, Hanna turned to me and said, Actually, she shouldn't be allowed to leave. It's too great a risk. A male labor recruiter had been following the interaction from the other end of the room, raised his voice and said, she's taken her shot. It's no problem. In the growing corpus of commentary dealing with the transnational industry for domestic work, most attention has been paid to the plight of women in destination countries, as well as their relationships with family members, um, particularly children who remain behind. While much is known about why unskilled migrants leave home and how they're treated upon arrival, however, much less is known about the actual process of labor recruitment. However, if we're going to grasp the changing structure of contemporary forms of transnational labor migration, it's critical to consider the migration industry that makes it possible, possible for migrants to move. 
This suggests a shift of attention away from, without denying the importance of, the emotional experiences of migrants and the forms of injustice they face in, in destination countries to the brokerage systems that move them from one place to, to another. Now, it's been widely noted that in the current global economy, capital moves uh, more easily than labor. And in this context, Biao has pointed out that transplant is a better metaphor than flow to describe the co contemporary circulation of migrants in Asia. The case of Yati above is a case in point, as she will ideally be moved from one point to another before being returned again after her two-year contract has ended. Um, the staff's concern with her potential pregnancy further highlights the process of transnational encapsulation that characterizes contemporary unskilled labor mobility across Asia as migrants become valuable commodities to be controlled by agencies and employers and later workers to be regulated and citizens to be protected by state actors. It's with this increasingly generalized concern with the management of transnational mobility that migrant transplant gains its contemporary force. So more broadly, this should be understood in relation to, inter, to two interrelated global economic and political contradictions that are further highlighted by Biao here. Uh, first, that between upward, the upward concentration of capital and the downward outsourcing of labor. And second, that between the dispersion and, and fragmentation of labor management and the centralization of, uh, of, of migration control. So in this context, a kind of space is created, indeed made necessary, in which labor recruitment agencies come to mediate flows of capital, uh, facilitate bureaucratic process, and move the migrants themselves. So through this process, in which brokers must deliver migrants before they're paid in full, the bodies of migrants are quickly transformed into valuable commodities to be controlled and protected. So in this talk, I'm interested in investigating this space and positioning myself ethnographically, um, particularly with regard to the process of labor recruitment and the formalization of a, a post-crisis migration industry in Indonesia. By crisis, I mean the 1997 Asian economic crisis. So in shifting perspective and with a focus on the Indonesian island of, of Lombok, uh, I consider the gendered process of migrant recruitment, uh, thus shedding light on how mobility is achieved in an era when documented migration appears uh, to be gaining ground throughout Asia at the expense of undocumented migration. Excuse me. In particular, I'm interested in how gendered regimes of debt uh, directly structured by the processes described above affect the recruitment and transplant of men and women from Indonesia to countries such as Malaysia and to Saudi Arabia. More generally, I'm arguing that labor recruitment is absolutely critical, an absolutely critical empirical starting point for conceptualizing transnational migration and the various intersections between global, national, and local processes. So Indonesian international migration has steadily increased since the 1980s and particularly since the 1997 Asian economic crisis. In fact, and largely as an effect of the crisis, the number of migrants officially sent abroad between 1997 and 1999 was more than the total during the previous 25 years combined. Of the nearly 700,000 Indonesians, documented Indonesian international migrants in, in 2006, 40% traveled to Malaysia, 45% to Saudi Arabia, 80% of the migrants were women and 88% worked as domestic servants. In other words, the Indonesian female domestic servant is by far the most common type of 
documented migrant, and also the type of migrant that has been most widely discussed by researchers and Indonesian mass media. One defining aspect of the broader Asia-Pacific migration system compared to North America and Western Europe, for instance, is that governments have tended to promote and regulate international migration. In Indonesia, international labor migration has, has been a critical element of national development since the early 1980s, both expanding uh, the labor market and creating access to, to foreign capital. Since 1983, the Indonesian government has permitted private Saudi agents to recruit labor in Indonesia through block visas uh, that can be issued, issued independently of the identities of the migrants who will eventually use them. Um, which contrasts with migration within Asia, where employers and agents generally recruit migrants via job orders after they apply for individual visas. During the Suharto era, which ended in 1998, uh, labor recruitment agencies were heavily regulated and connected to systems of state-sponsored patronage. In other words, the labor recruitment market was extremely centralized. Uh, which meant that the majority of migrants traveling to neighboring Malaysia, particularly men, crossed the border illegally, since it was both uh, faster and less expensive. Although it's, it's frequently stated that migrant flows to Malaysia are primarily undocumented, my field research in 2007-2009 in suggests that in recent years there's been a drop in undocumented and a rise in documented migration from Indonesia to Malaysia particularly in the context of the exclusively male palm oil and construction industries. On the island of Lombok, one of the main sending areas for male migrants to Malaysia, this shift has been particularly obvious. Between 2000 and 2005, the number of migrant passports issued nearly tripled, and during the preceding five-year period, the increase was certainly far more dramatic. Um, I was actually only able to access data from 2000 until 2007, and even this data was considered sensitive by the officials in charge, and it was only given the figures on a handwritten uh, note. And the reason for this unease is certainly that the government office that issues passports is widely known as, as a gudanguang, a money warehouse. Um, and during field work, it was, in fact, nearly impossible to find any recruiters or migrants who were interested in sending or being sent to Malaysia without a passport. An incredible shift uh, compared to 15 years ago when basically every, every uh, male migrant traveled illegally to Malaysia. The 1997 crisis was a watershed in migration to Malaysia as recurring deportation campaigns and the emergence of a state-sponsored civil volunteer corps with the right to detain undocumented migrants in exchange for cash awards gained increasing support in tandem with a facilitated work visa process. MOUs between the Indonesian and Malaysian governments attempted to regulate the mobility of migrants between the countries. Furthermore, the deregulation of the labor recruitment market in Indonesia, following the dismantling of monopolies after the fall of Suharto, led to a dramatic increase in the number of labor recruitment agencies in Indonesia. These agencies control the market for documented migration across the country. Today, there are around 500, 500 registered agencies in the country, where 150 uh, alone work on, on Lombok. So despite the shift to documented forms of labor recruitment, one should keep in mind that since the 1970s, most forms of migration from Indonesia and throughout the Asia, Pacific, and the Middle East have been characterized by contract labor migration. And this includes also uh, uh, illegal migration, undocumented migration, um, including um, uh, migration into the prostitution industry. 
which traces its origins from the contract coolie system of the colonial era. In other words, despite the changes in the migration system, it's important to remain attentive to the, to the significant continuities in the formation of the global labor reserve. And more specifically, it's critical to consider how the dual processes of, of, of centralization and, and fragmentation, as discussed by Biao, uh, take shape in relation to historical continuities in, in labor recruitment that utilize already existing forms of social uh, relations on the village level across Indonesia. So Lombok is part of West Nusa Tenggara province together with Sumbawa and a series of smaller islands, approximately 4,700 square meters in kilometers in, in, in size, and with a predominantly Muslim population of around 3 million concentrated from east to west along, along the main road that cuts through the island. Irrigated rice cultivation dominates Lombok's economy, but capital-intensive crops such as tobacco are increasingly common. And actually now there's a, a bit of a gold rush in, in the south part of the island. The island is, is located at the Wallace Line that divides the lusher and greener parts of Indonesia from the drier and often poorer areas. While the western parts of the island resemble Bali to the west, uh, the eastern and southern parts of the island are, are similar to the more arid uh, Sumbawa to the, to the east. The effects are obvious as many parts of central and western Lombok have up to three harvests of rice per year, while the drier parts often only have one. These latter areas are also much poorer, have in recent years become the, the main source of, of migrant labor um, to Malaysia and Saudi Arabia. The 1997 crisis had devastating effects on Lombok's poorest peasants, who depend primarily on temporary wage labor, Excuse me. rapidly pushing those who could access capital to migrate abroad, as the Indonesian rupiah dropped dramatically in value in relation to foreign currencies. Moreover, uh, the anti-Christian riots of 2000 and the Bali bombs crippled a promising uh, tourist industry, um, somewhat ironically even more than it crippled Bali, uh, creating yet another group of workers who moved towards the rapidly expanding migration industry. One sign of the importance of, the contemporary, of contemporary migration is that remittances to the area have quickly become greater than to local total income. The shift in the regional economy is all the more striking if one considers that in, in much work, ethnographic work on Lombok in the 1970s and 1980s, migration was rarely mentioned at all. By 2004, however, 14,000 migrants were officially leaving Lombok each year, while this figure steadily increased to over 40,000 by 2008. Of those, almost 75% traveled to Malaysia, the great majority men on palm oil plantations, and more than 25% to Saudi Arabia. Annual departures to Saudi Arabia, the great majority of whom are women working as domestic servants, has increased by 15 times since 2004. In fact, however, the figures from Lombok account for far from all international migration, as many migrants are officially recruited in other parts of the country, while others travel abroad outside of formal channels. Women on Lombok have not only tended to marry at a young age, often in their early teens, but the island also has among the highest divorce rates in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. Marriage and divorce have been understood in relation to economic cycles. While a common saying in the 1970s was that people get married after the harvest when the rice barn is filled and divorce some months later when the rice is finished, by the late 1990s, it was claimed that couples marry when the man returns from Malaysia and divorce when the money is gone and he once again leaves for the palm oil plantations abroad. The widely used uh, acronym JAMAL, 
short for Janda Malaysia, or Malaysian widow, suggests the gendered form of migration that developed from Lombok and other islands further east since the 1980s. Migration continues to follow economic and cultural uh, cycles as many return before Idul Fitri, the celebration that marks the end of Ramadan, uh, before leaving shortly thereafter, while departures remain low during the tobacco season when, con- when temporary wage labor is, is readily available. During the previous decade, with increasing demand for domestic servants across Asia and the Middle East, the gendered bias of migration has rapidly shifted, and today women are increasingly leaving Lombok and nearby Sumbawa to work abroad. Despite that many people, including the labor recruiters themselves, claim that female migration is haram or forbidden in Islamic terms, this trend is intensifying. For commoner women on Lombok, who have historically become sources of labor uh, during periods of economic scarcity, or raised by gentry families in exchange for domestic service, the move towards um, transnational migration does not appear to represent a radical shift. For divorced women, migration also offers the possibility of sort of supporting children and parents as the burden of income shifts from the man to the woman. Furthermore, going abroad is seen by many young rural women as a possibility of, of at least temporarily escaping from a circumscribed and patriarchal uh, village life. While more generally, international migration has quickly become a kind of rite of passage and part of a kind of nationalized moral economy of circular migration that has developed in, in Indonesian recent decades. Traveling to Saudi Arabia in particular offers the possibility of making the pilgrimage to Mecca with one's employers. While the material effects of remittances are obvious across the island, as new houses with tile floors are easily identified as Rumah Saudi or Rumah Malaysia, Saudi or Malaysian houses, and hundreds of mosques are in the process of being constructed. Of the more than 150 labor recruitment agencies holding government permits on Lombok, only eight are main offices, while the rest are branches to main offices generally located in major cities such as uh, Jakarta or Surabaya. While main offices are only allowed to begin operations with significant amounts of capital, branch offices open and close easily. On Lombok, there's great variation between these different agencies. The largest send up to 3,000 male migrants per year, with a particular focus on Malaysian palm oil plantations, and often have contacts with high-ranking government officials that offer access to contacts with the largest Malaysian state-owned company, Felda. The majority of the branch offices, however, only have a few staff and are dependent on the flow of capital from their main office. Even minimal disturbances uh, in terms of migrant or capital flows between the two can lead to the closure of a branch. These offices, which frequently double as residences, tend to be located in the main towns on Lombok. To add to the complexity, many informal labor uh, recruiters who often live in the island's rural areas have large agency banners hanging in front of their houses, although they in fact deliver, deliver migrants to multiple agencies since they do not have contracts and are paid for each recruit they deliver. In turn, these labor recruiters collaborate with large numbers of sub-recruiters, thus creating an incredibly complicated and unstable network that involves thousands of people uh, across the island, reminiscent of the bizarre economy that um, Clifford Gertz described some 50 years ago. 
So with the increasing shift towards documented labor migration among men to Malaysia in particular, there's been a formalization of process in bureaucratic terms. As growing numbers of documents have become compulsory in order to acquire a passport and a work visa, the migrant is in principle free to choose between different agencies and the various job orders that each offers, for instance, to a particular palm oil um, company or to a particular city to work as a domestic servant. So in this process, there is on the one hand a distinction between agencies that have the right to recruit in the Middle East and Asia Pacific, and on the other hand, a legal distinction, which in fact is gendered between the informal and formal sector, with the former meaning domestic servants and the latter including all other forms of labor. Migrants within the informal sector must be at least 21, uh, that is, those who work as domestic servants, while those in the formal sector only need to be 18. Ideally, um, the migrant recruit presents the necessary documents, the ID, birth certificate, and, and so on, to the agency who handles uh, the passport and the visa for the migrant. In fact, however, labor uh, recruitment does not follow this process. Migrants almost never approach the agency directly. Instead, an informal labor recruiter, a petugas lapangan, or PL, meaning field agent, also called a sponsor, approaches or is approached by the migrant directly, in the, either in the area where he or she lives or through other forms of social relations such as f friends, family, or a local figure of authority. So historically in Asian migration, it's often been the middlemen rather than the, the migrants themselves who've had strong networks on both sides of the border leading back to the migrant sending villages. So it's clear there's been a dramatic growth in sponsors on, on Lombok and across Indonesia since the 1997 crisis. While the 1980s and 1990s was the era of the taikong, or the migrant smuggler, particularly to Malaysia, with the formalization of labor recruitment, the last decade has come to be dominated by the sponsor. This suggests uh, a process of, of bureaucratization and of domestication. In the current recruitment regime, elementary school teachers, former migrants, university lecturers, and even a grandmother who previously worked in a village office are examples of successful sponsors that I've met on Lombok. Unlike the Taikong, who was often, though not always, a kind of shadowy figure, and Kapachayan, trust, rather than Kapiranian, bravery, has become the more, most important expressed quality in contemporary recruitment. One sponsor explained the source of his expertise. Recruiting migrants is exactly the same as selling carpets in the market. In both cases, you have to be clever at bargaining. But in the next breath, when I asked him what the most important quality was for a PL, he repeated the broker ma mantra, you have to be honest. In government offices involved in international migration, there are large signs that warn migrants against using chalos uh, or brokers, a slightly derogatory term that refers to sponsors. In fact, however, because of the complicated bureaucratic procedures and endemic forms of small-scale corruption, that, that can either slow or speed up the process. It's nearly impossible for a migrant not to use a sponsor. And it's at points such as these that the centralization of migrant control and the fragmentation of, of labor management come to intersect in, as the expansion of an informal brokerage system located between the village and, 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 and the agency is both vilified and absolutely necessary in the creation of a migration industry that merges capitalism, state power, and local economies of trust. And actually, last, the, the initial title I had for this talk focused on, on, on this 
explicitly on this particular group. Um, uh, but unfortunately, my whole family fell ill last week, so I had to sort of revert to this more, somewhat more general talk. But this is something I really want to talk about later, because something that I'm interested in in Biao also, I think, is, is the figure of the broker, both not only in empirical terms, but in analytical terms, because there's a very strong tradition, of course, of, of the broker in, in anthropology, which has largely disappeared in, in, in the last couple of decades. And I'll raise that point at the end for, for discussion. Um, it's mid-morning at Semesta, the time of day when recruiters from around Lombok begin to show up with potential migrants. Two women enter the office. One is in her early 40s and obviously a sponsor, while the other is much younger and clearly a recruit. They're from Tanjung in the north piece, northeast part of the island, one of the main areas on Lombok for the recruitment of female domestic workers. Rina greets them, picks up a new folder, and forms and asks the young woman to sit down across from her while the sponsor, who comes to the office weekly with one or two migrants, sits turned towards them at the next desk over. Rena asks if she has an identity card and if she can read and write. She asks her to read the top part of the form before asking about her education. It turns out that she's graduated from junior high school. Rena asks if she has a letter of permission from her parents and the woman asks, answers yes and if she has ever been to Saudi Arabia or Malaysia, to which she answers no. Most of her answers are yes or no. The woman has previously worked on Bali for a year as a maid, where she made 200,000 rupee, about $20 per month, and six months in Mataram and Lombok, where she made uh, about 175,000 rupee per month. Rina shakes her head and says she understands why she wants to go to Malaysia. The sponsor laughs and says, in Malaysia you can make a lot of money. The woman's father is a fisherman and her mother is a housewife. Rina asks how old they are, but she doesn't know. The sponsor says that her father is in his 40s and the mother is about 35. Um, she's the oldest of four children. Rina says, you have a lot of responsibility. The girl nods. She's then interviewed about what kinds of work she can do and only uncertain about one, one question, if she can care for a baby. After looking towards the sponsor who nods, she agrees that she can, but with some hesitation. Afterwards, she's left alone for a while before the photo shoot and the trip to the medical center. I go up and try to talk to her, but do not get much of a response. She's 21. A critical difference between the recruitment of men and women, or more specifically between the formal and informal sector, is that men generally must pay a fee prior to departure, while women do not. This distinction has become increasingly marked during the last few years as competition from female domestic servants has intensified across Asia and the Middle East. For instance, between 2007 and 2009, the fee to Indonesian recruitment companies from labor agencies in Saudi Arabia reportedly increased from 800 to 1400 to 1500 US dollars per migrant, with similar changes in other markets such as Malaysia. In effect, this has meant that, that fees to local sponsors have increased dramatically from around 150 US dollars to over $500 per female uh, migrant, thus generating intense competition among labor recruiters across, across Indonesia. Um, this is in an island where the average income is perhaps, I mean, if you can actually get employment 
$30-$40 per month. In practice, the main office generally controls funds until the migrant has been successfully recruited, while the branch office on Lombok pays out an initial fee to the sponsor, which is spent on the recruitment process, transportation costs, basic documents, and medical checkup, and gifts to the migrant. Once the migrant has safely departed, the full fee is paid to the local office, which in turn pays the sponsor, who in turn uh, pays a number of sub-sponsors. So this, the direction of these payments can, of course, um, vary depending on how much risk um, the various parties are, are willing to take in paying money up front. The local branch generally makes a profit of around 30 US dollar, uh, dollars. If a sponsor does well, on the other hand, he, he or she can make a profit of around $300 per migrant. It's striking to compare this with migrant wages. Domestic servants in Malaysia make approximately 600 ringgit or $175 per month after six months' salary has been deducted for fees for each two-year contract. While in Saudi Arabia, women make 800 rial, about $215 U.S. dollars per month with no fees deducted. Domestic servants can make far higher salaries in Hong Kong and Taiwan, but there's a longer language training process, and women with an elementary school education are rarely recruited for these jobs. Most women also prefer destinations that are predominantly Muslim. Men working as drivers in Saudi Arabia make about 270 U.S. dollars per month, while in the Malaysian palm oil plantation, men can make around 235 US dollars per month. This can be compared with temporary wage labor in, in, in Lombok's tobacco fields, which pays around two to three dollars per day. So while capital flows down in the recruitment of women, for the recruitment of a man, capital flows up from the migrant to the sponsor in the Indonesian recruitment agency. For instance, a man wanting to work as a driver in Saudi Arabia must pay around 1,000 US dollars, while the fee for construction in Malaysia is around 550 US dollars. And for palm oil plantations uh, in, in Malaysia, around 400. This, um, um, the cost um, is generally um, directly correlated to, to, to the salary that the, the migrant makes abroad. As of July 2009, the fee for working on a Malaysian palm oil plantation hovered around 230 US dollars, while the added $170 comes from the fee that the sponsor accesses from the migrant. So the migrant rarely has anything directly to do with, um, with the agency. This, the middleman, the sponsor, handles uh, all payments in between. Uh, agencies that attempt to charge higher fees are quickly abandoned by sponsors as, relatively as a relatively stable market has developed. So the sponsor's fee is thus dependent on the amount of money that he or she can extract from the migrant. Potential migrants are, however, increasingly well-versed in, in costs and salaries abroad, and this, this, this part of the market has also become increasingly stable. As with the recruitment of women, the sponsor is responsible for basic documents and, and medical examination, but also the cost of the passport. After transportation and cell phone costs, gifts, and the payment of sub-sponsors, the sponsor is left with perhaps 40 to 50 US dollars for each migrant that he or she uh, successfully, usually he when, when it comes to um, palm oil, um, 40 to 50 dollars for each migrant. So this is a dramatic difference compared to um, female migrant. So the critical problem in the recruitment of, of, the, of, of men is precisely the migrant's ability to access capital. 
Returning migrants may control capital, but generally men will borrow from informal moneylenders at 100% interest. The migrant often repays the debt through incremental installments over time, usually between six months and two years, uh, once he has arrived abroad. Although Lombok is not only called the island of a thousand mosques, but also occasionally that of a million thieves, on Lombok people do not speak easily of, of usury but those who do uh, generally le legitimize it in terms of business, usaha, meaning that those who do control capital can easily generate comparable profits by investing, for instance, in, in tobacco planting rather than money lending. Often this lending is informal and based on relationships between neighbors, but contracts are increasingly drawn up on a local level and witnessed by the local village head with the migrant's parents and other relatives being held accountable if the debt is not repaid in time. In these contracts, it's never stated how much has been borrowed, only the sum that is due. If the migrant's family owns a land or house, this is often used as collateral. In this process, it's frequently the sponsor who lends part or all of the money necessary in order to speed up the process. But because there are so many different kinds of sponsors, uh, the, only the ones who have been able to access um, uh, significant amounts of capital uh, engage in this kind of lending. There are also many, many uh, sponsors who are trying to get into the game, so to speak, uh, who perhaps try to recruit migrants for a, a couple of months but and may succeed or may fail and may end up spending more money um, uh, than they're making. So the recruitment of women has a similar structure, but capital flows, as I've already noted, in the opposite direction. Uh, usually the woman's husband or parents must be convinced that a letter of permission is required from either of them, particularly if she is not yet married, but even if she is divorced. Increasingly, the woman or her parents are offered up to $100 in, in shopping money, an initial stage of recruitment, so this is a significant sum of, of, of money. For the sponsor and often the labor agency that pays the sponsor an initial fee for this purpose, this entails a risk since there are, there are many other competing sponsors offer, offering similar incentives. In the case of men, but particularly in the recruitment of women, it's, it's critical for the sponsor if he's not part of the extended family or known in the village to use sub-sponsors in order to generate relations of trust. With the recruitment of women, a female sponsor is usually involved, preferably one who has already worked in the destination country and can explain what the migration process holds in store. So once the female migrant has agreed to depart and a, and a bus or airline ticket has been purchased, there's increasing concern about her backing out. In contrast to male migrants, at this stage women are frequently moved to the actual recruitment agency, as in the case of, of Yati described in the beginning of the article where they sleep and engage in training, which basically means offering free labor to the agency through cooking and cleaning. The further along in the process the migrant is, the more valuable she is to the sponsor and the agency that has recruited her. The main threats to the transplant of the woman to the destination country are generally an illness such as hepatitis B, pregnancy, or that she or a family member will change their mind regarding her departure. Encapsulation is used to protect the migrant from these threats. The head of one Jakarta-based labor agency sending migrants to Saudi Arabia told me that the most common type of disease for female migrants is pregnancy, particularly since it generally takes at least several weeks after conception before it's possible to test with any certainty. 
I've witnessed several cases of women who are about to depart for Jakarta from, from Lombok and are sent to a local clinic to receive a contraceptive, final contraceptive shot. The case of Yati, which I opened this article with, clearly illuminates the way that Luber, labor recruitment agencies um, and sponsors deal with this issue. So in the case of women traveling to Malaysia, particularly those who have been there on contracts before, cell phones and Malaysian phone numbers are generally confiscated. As sponsors or agents will search women's bags prior to departure in order to prevent contact with boyfriends or family members who may help them run away and thus escape the debt that is repaid during a period of months. In the cases that a woman does actually run away, the Indonesian agency and sponsor are, are held accountable by the Malaysian labor agent and are forced to pay back the fee if they do not want to be blacklisted. So as capital incrementally flows down, uh, the female migrant is transformed into a commodity that must be protect, protected by the recruitment agency and the sponsor. Uh, commodification begins on Lombok and continues with the escort of migrants to Jakarta or other cities where they're trained at the main office prior to departure. In contrast, for men, debt becomes localized through social relations in the village, thus binding him to fellow villagers and, and, and family members rather than the sponsor or labor recruitment agency. If the migrant chooses to back out, the agency never loses money since relations of debt remain centered on, on money lenders and sponsors who lend money to potential migrants. So this is very much a work in progress, um, but what, I, what I've outlined here is, is um, nevertheless a kind of framework for which I've identified labor recruitment as a kind of critical ethnographic site from which to begin to conceptualize a broader system of migration. So, so field work is, is, is still ongoing. This ethnographic space allows me to highlight various intersections between labor recruitment and capital flows while creating a vantage point from which to consider not only how mi migration is gendered, but more forcefully how um, gender actually shapes transnational migration regimes. Throughout the parts of Indonesia that are key sources of migrant labor, women's migration abroad remains a sensitive issue compared to the much greater freedoms that young men have both, have both inside and outside of the household. In Lombok's current economy, it's men rather than women who borrow money to move forward in life, thus creating a situation in which capital must flow towards women rather than away from them, and the guarantees are offered to family members and local communities regarding uh, their protection from abuse abroad. Migrant women, or men for that matter, however, are clearly not passive victims in, in these processes. Um, the fact that 30,000 domestic servants reportedly run away from their employers in Malaysia each year in order to escape debt, or that Yati and the story that opened this article returned home rather than remaining and holding at the recruitment agency, suggests that over time migrant women are developing strategies within the current migration regime and in relation to their increasingly transnational lives, both at home and abroad. As increasing numbers of migrants return home um, after two-year contracts and the as a prevalence of cell phones facilitate long-distance communication, knowledge about migration has become inc increasingly pervasive uh, across Lombok. And this is also one reason why, why uh, a kind of market has, has stabilized. Um, in this process, as migrants' capital and knowledge come to circulate between local, national, and global scales, a migration system is taking shape, which is not easily summarized in terms of power relations, gendered or otherwise. 
So let me end this talk by offer, not offering not by offering closure, uh, but rather by raising a couple of broader themes, uh, um, which um, we might discuss further. Um, First, I want to suggest a return to the broker as an empirical and analytical starting point in the context of an anthropology of transnationalism and globalization. The broker was, of course, a, a classic figure in, in anthropology, beginning with the work of Gertz and Wolff in the late 1950s, um, and people like Robert Payne and Jeremy Bossavin in the, in the 1970s, but has today largely disappeared from view, analytically, that is. Um, but rather than taking um, for granted that we know what the broker is mediating between, for instance, um, enclosed units such as the village and the nation, as in the case of, um, of the sort of vertical analysis that Wolf and Gertz uh, were uh, engaged in, um, or that an engagement with the broker is an end in itself, I think the broker should be conceptualized as a kind of strategic ethnographic starting point um, for conceptualizing relationships between cultural, economic, and political processes that are not easily grasped prior to ethnographic engagement. Um, there's also, beyond the sort of vertical relations that I've described, there's, there's also a whole series of, series of movements of brokers in and out of brokerage, but also to other forms of brokering. Uh, land brokers, tourist guides, um, um, and, and sort of similar kinds of, of, of mediating sites. Um, arguably, and, and in contrast to the predictions of many scholars with globalization and, and forms of subcontracting or fragmentation associated with neoliberalism, brokers will become more rather than less important. Um, more specifically, in the context of my study, the, the, the focus on the broker becomes a way of considering intersections between uh, recruitment agencies, bureaucracies, and villages where relations of trust, power, and, de and debt that organize life throughout Indonesia are in play and must be taken into account. So this is one thing, one issue that I'm thinking of uh, right now is, is um, how do we bring the, the, bro the broker back in? And is this something that resonates with other people's work? Um, second, it seems to me that the relationship between the centralization of migration control and the fragmentation of labor recruitment can be conceptualized in broader terms as one between neoliberalism and nationalism. And uh, now I'm sort of out on a limb uh, because this is something that I um, thought up yesterday. Uh, <laughs> and I talked with Biao about it over lunch and he wasn't convinced, but I, I'll throw it out here. Um, um, and this is most strongly played out in the concern with the pr protection of the female migrant. Um, and as I speak, the sending of female domestic servants to Malaysia has been stopped after a widely publicized case of abuse uh, that has led to demands for the revision of the 2006 MOU between Indonesia and Malaysia. And we have similar cases of stoppages of, of female migrants to Saudi Arabia, for instance. So here, um, the links between the sort of the fate of the female migrant abroad and, and sort of the Indonesian nation is, is, is very intimately connected in policy. Furthermore, separate migrant arrival terminals are being constructed at airports around Indonesia, including on Lombok, in order to protect returning migrants. The main was, one is in, in Jakarta. Um, but 
now just this past summer, uh, one opened on Lombok, and all returning migrants are supposed to report um, to this to this particular uh, terminal. In, and and, and in the point being that there should be some form of regulation that is connected to, to protection. Um, now, in relation to neoliberalism, the focus on labor recruitment moves us away from sort of the totalizing models of scholars such as David Harvey, who um, his definition of neoliberalism basically is the financialization of everything, and perhaps closer to someone like Ivo Ong's understanding of neoliberalism as a set of technologies that come to intersect with forms of life that clearly cannot be labeled neoliberal, namely those in, in villages on, on Lombok and across Indonesia. So at these intersections between neoliberalism, nationalism, and local forms of life, there's a self-reflexive uh, concern with ethics, uh, which, which, which is a critical site, I think, for, for conceptualizing this, this, um, this new migration industry. And then on the one hand, we have this sort of self-conscious uh, proclamation of, of brokers who say that the most critical quality of a broker is to be honest. Um, on the other hand, you have sort of uh, the ethics of, of, of uh, family life in, in, in villages on, on Lombok. And on the, on, the, on the other hand, you have, or on the third hand, um, you have the issue of nationalism and the kind of regulation that, that follows from this kind of moralizing discourse. So I don't know if that makes any, any sense, but... Uh, I think it does, but I'm not entirely clear um, if, if uh, I think I'll just end So this is this is um, as, as I'm saying, this is this is a, a, a work in progress. I'm actually never, I haven't presented uh, this material in a setting such as this. I'm, I'd be very happy to, to hear what you all have to say about this, and also the comparative um, discussions would be very interesting to me too. So thanks a lot. Thank you very much.